Welcome to those joining live and those on live stream. Delight to be with you. My name is Ken Vaughn. If I don't know you, then I hope to meet you soon. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Be teaching this morning. We'll continue in First Peter in a moment. I know it's been said not once but twice, but I still want to add my uh, greeting, especially to the mamas. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Can we just give them a hand? I certainly did not appreciate it my first time around as a son of a wonderfully godly mother, uh, but I am much more appreciating it this time around as a husband that being a mom is the most tireless and thankless job in the world. That's very clear and yet so critically important and vital to everything God's doing in the home and in the community and for the kingdom of God. So moms, we just are deeply grateful for you. Uh, Wes already said this as well, but I'm also going to say it again. I uh, know there's, there's many women in here that long to be a mom, and we love to, we love to bear that uh, desire with you and to pray for you. And um, we've seen God open wounds and wombs and uh, bring uh, husbands and families where, where seemingly hope was lost. And so um, while our contentment remains in Christ, that's a joy to pray along those lines and pray that God give you the desires of your heart. And we know that um, others have pain from losing a mom recently. I know of um, at least one in that boat, and it's a time for us to also grieve with those who grieve. So there's a lot that goes on in our bellies as it relates to moms um, because of how significant they are. Uh, but I think it's right for us to be deeply joyful and uh, grateful uh, for the moms here in this room, and so we are. Our text this morning will be in First uh, Peter. We'll continue on in 3. If you're able to stand to your feet, I'm going to read to you. The very words of God out of chapter 3, verse 8 and following, you'll see it starts with the word finally. It's a summation of where we've been for the last month. Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we, um, we're always grateful to be in your house and worshiping you and under the authority and power of your word. Today our hearts are especially lit just thinking of the mothers who have loved us so unconditionally and sacrificially. I don't know that there's a love that more mirrors your love for us than that of a mother who so unconditionally and sacrificially gives herself to love her children. We delight in your design uh, for what a good and godly mother is meant to be. And for those of us that have experienced that, our cup overflows with blessing and our hearts are so full of gratitude. So thank you. Uh, Lord, for those who hurt on this day, for whatever reason, or long on this day, we hurt with them and we long with them. And we can bring our desires to you, God, who are Abba, Father, and just lay them before you. We anchor ourselves to the throne room of your grace. Our contentment is in you. And we trust you with those desires that you've given us. And, uh, and we pray uh, that you'd meet us in them with your sustaining presence, your mercy, and your grace. God, thank you for this text that is a summation of um, such a great exhortation Peter's been giving us as believers. Would you illumine our eyes to its truth today? Would you set our hearts aflame uh, for, uh, in pursuit of holiness according to your word? Would you transform us by its very power and the power of your Holy Spirit to work through your word to change our hearts? 
to make us more like your son, Jesus. Pray that as I preach, he would increase. He must. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, this text begins with a finally, or your Bible might say to sum up. So what's the uh, line of thinking or the argument uh, Peter's been making? Well, uh, since the beginning of chapter 2, Peter has said, okay, we need to crave the spiritual milk of God's word. We need to grow up in the gospel. For why? Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Remember, we're the temple and the priesthood. A holy nation. We've been set apart for God's purposes. We are a people that are given the privilege of proclaiming his excellencies. The excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into the glorious light. That's quite a stewardship and quite a privilege. And we won't do it if we get caught up in the things of this world. So he says in 11, remember, you are sojourners and exiles. You're passing through this world on the way to your ultimate home where your heavenly citizenship awaits. So in light of that, in light of who God is, what he has called us to, the reality of our being sojourners on the way to our heavenly home, we can live differently. We can hold certain things more loosely than those around us may hold. Doesn't mean we're uninterested. Doesn't mean we may have substantive disagreements on things. But we cling only to Christ in the gospel, in the kingdom of God. And we hold loosely to things that might otherwise divide us. He talks in certain contexts. He says you ought to be a certain kind of citizen. By the way, again, the, all these contexts are, they, they, they illumine our testimony of who Christ is and the power of the gospel. They, they, they put flesh on it, or they don't. That's kind of the point. Either the world sees in us a demonstration of the transforming power of the gospel, or they don't. And Peter's saying they must we must live out the transformational power of the gospel in various contexts, lest our witness has no credibility. If we can't be citizens that are prayerful towards um, those who govern over us and are submissive and excellent citizens, so long as we're not called to sin, we'd be excellent. And by the way, remember when this was written, first century, they're being persecuted and killed for being Christians. Um, if we can't be excellent, it will compromise our witness. If we can't live as a certain kind of way uh, as employees in the workforce, even if your boss is corrupt, you're to be excellent as an employee. You're not to return evil for evil. That's what he's getting at in all these passages. As a wife in a marriage, realizing that marriage is not ultimately about your happiness, but about your holiness, the character of Christ being displayed, the gospel being illustrated, so you love your husband, be submitted to him, as unto the Lord. This is your calling as a wife. Do it for the Lord, not because he deserves it, but because Jesus deserves it, not because your husband deserves it. All right? Sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. But Jesus deserves it always. Husbands, we're to lead our wives in a certain kind of way, a servant leadership. We don't bow up, we don't lead based on power or strength. We lead in servanthood. We love them as Christ loved the church. Impossible, but that's the standard. We pursue it. Death to self every day. Wives aren't going to have a problem being submitted to their husband's leadership if he loves them like Christ loves the church. The world's meant to look at our marriages and go, God, that's just different. That's, I want that. If I ever get married, I want it to look like those folks. The tenderness, the willingness to forgive, the unselfishness. And even if they don't have words for it, they're meant to see the gospel played out before their very eyes. 
This is what Peter's saying. Our lives either will give credibility to what we say is true about Christ in the gospel or will tear credibility asunder. He's saying it's vitally important that we don't, um, well, that we do walk the walk and not just talk the talk. We cannot export what we do not possess. Okay, so the testimony of the gospel of our proclamation of what's true, the excellencies of God, is at stake with how we live. And so the final context he's going to give us here is for all of us now. He's probably spoken to all of us in one way or the other, as citizens, as uh, employees, as wives, as husbands, but now he just says, finally, all of you. And I would say this verse, this little passage, is if I were, there's a million little titles I could have given to this text, but this is the fundamentals. There's a certain kind of way that believers must treat one another and outsiders or non-believers. And literally the integrity of the gospel is at stake and your own peace, your own right fellowship with God is at stake on whether or not we can discipline ourselves according to the fundamentals of our faith. So Peter says finally, culmination, all of you have unity of mind. That's where he starts, unity of mind. Uh, in context, again, this is in a day uh, not unlike our day. They are, uh, there are differences of opinion in the church. There are Jews and Gentiles being thrown together for the first time ever. There was strict separation uh, and all kind of codes and laws that existed. But now the dividing wall is being torn down. That's what Paul would write in Ephesians. By the very blood of Christ... So those things which would otherwise divide us, our socioeconomic status, our um, ethnicity or our race, our views on politics, those things which we may line up on one side or another, those dividing walls, or I should say potential dividing walls, are torn down by the blood of Christ. There's one man, one new man formed in Christ. That which binds us together, the blood of Christ, supersedes and renders worthless everything that would otherwise divide us. Now, this is a relevant text. I'll say that in the last 16 months, there's been every opportunity for us to be divided in here. My number one prayer throughout the last 16 months is unity. Unity in the spirit by the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, that we as a church would embody being of the same mind. Even when we disagree on the standards put forth by governing authorities according to the pandemic and, and, and what those should be or shouldn't be and when it's right to apply them or not apply them. And, and, and all the, gee was I've been in so many conversations that are just hard. I don't know, how should we think about that? Disagreements everywhere. Now we got, and, and, and social justice issues and then the, into the election. I mean, it has been a field day for the enemy to attack unity in the church. And many of us have fallen prey, if we're honest. Many of us have stepped in a pothole somewhere and gotten sideways with a brother or sister that we've probably never, not yet reconciled. And anyone on the outside who sees that is unimpressed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reputation of Christ is at stake, that we do not focus on those things which divide us. We have opinions, we, we, we speak truth in love, we talk substantively, we disagree on things, but we are single-minded in our pursuit of Christ's glory and the truth of the gospel. We have the, that's, that's the same mind he's talking about. We'd be overwhelmed as sojourners and, ex, sojourners and exiles of the sojourning journey we're on 
towards heaven, and we are shoulder to shoulder together. We can disagree on a lot of stuff, but we will not let it divide us because there's something far more important that binds us together. This thing in front of us that binds us together commandeers our very lives. These things we disagree on, we've got to be able to hold loosely. Can't let them become barriers which break relationship, break fellowship, lead to anger, harshness, gossip, slander, bitterness. Fundamentals right here. Um, The movie Remember the Titans came to mind this week. I think it displays this in in various forms if you've seen that movie. Um, Coach Boone uh, takes a team of white and black players in the early 70s at T.C. Williams High School based on a true story. I don't know how many liberties the movie took, but based on a true story, they go to a camp. By the way, they they were putting pressure to just divide the kids into two teams based on race. And the coach says, no, we're not going to do that. But the kids won't, they can't get along, and the families don't like each other, and the community is fighting. And so he takes the kids away to camp, and uh, they're not getting along, they don't want to play together, they're, you know, they don't want to run the plays together. And he finally stops, gives really an epic speech, and he says, look, we're going to have to learn the lessons from history, or we're going to be destroyed. He said, the carnage is piled up behind us of men and women who divided on the basis of skin color. And you can't accomplish anything in that kind of division. Now he says this, by the way, of a high school football team, so bear with me. This is, a, this is a, on a much smaller level what ought to be deeply housed by the church of Jesus Christ. But he told them a truth. He said, unless we can get focused on something in front of us that we will, that's worthy of our coming together to accomplish this goal, we are wasting our time we, will be, uh, we won't just fail. He says, we'll be destroyed. I like that. That reminds me of Jesus' letters to the churches that John um, has in his vision and revelation. Your candlelight will be snuffed out. If you can't come together for something preeminent, for them it was unity for the sake of success as a football team. For us, it's something far greater. The glory of Christ and his coming kingdom and the integrity of the gospel If that can't commandeer our lives enough to where we can lay down differences with people who think differently or vote differently or look differently, if that can't commandeer our attention, then we will be utterly destroyed. By the way, by the will of God, he won't have that for his people. He warns us strongly against that. We're to be a holy people. It's totally different than a world who gets divided every which way on these things. We can disagree, but we cannot divide. Because we have one mind, and that mind is Christ's glory and his coming. We're captivated by it. We're commandeered by it in our lives. So we hold everything else loosely, and we cling to the gospel. One mind. And he goes on to say, sympathy. These all go together, but one way you have one mind is you're sympathetic towards those who are different than you, who disagree with you, who think differently, who look differently, who have different background, different experience. Um, come from a different part of town, whatever it may be, that you would sympathize. That means uh, sympathy is, is up here, that you cognitively understand their pain. We don't sympathize unless, we're willing, unless we care, unless we listen. It's one of the things I've uh, tried to preach throughout this last 18 months is, hey, there's a lot, we disagree with each other on a lot of things. We need to really spend more time listening than arguing, and especially more time listening than posting uh, um, contentious uh, social media post 
or been gossiping, Lord forbid, slandering one another, we need to listen. We need to be sympathetic, some people sympathetic with those who think differently. We gotta understand one another. The Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens. When folks are in pain, we don't discount that pain. We bear up with them. We, we, uh, when somebody loses a loved one in the church, um, uh, we come around them as a community. We grieve with those who grieve. When uh, folks have children, we had a baby dedication in our first service this morning, a bunch of babies. We come alongside and celebrate and actually try to lead those children to the Lord together, pray for them. We have a church covenant as members. We wanna walk out, live out our faith together as the family of God. It's not just a good idea, it's a biblical command. The fundamentals require that we be sympathetic to others. If you go, well, I'm just not normally a sympathetic guy, then you need to change. Yeah, repent, ask God to help you. Start practicing being sympathetic with believers who are struggling, who are in pain, who are around you, an area of, ser- of your service in the church. And then he says brotherly love. We get Philadelphia. The idea of brotherly love is the idea that this would have, this would be love with flesh on it. It would be practically applied. Um, the concept of brotherly love is also family. I, 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 I didn't have brothers per se in my biological family, two sisters, but I know this. One of my sisters was close in proximity. The other was five years younger, so we weren't as close kind of in the chapters of life. But, we, but they're my sisters. I would tell you uh, with integrity, I'd do anything for them. And even though we've now had a lot more time out of the house than those years we spent in the house, they're still my sisters. It's not, and there's been things that have come between us, there's been times we've deeply hurt each other, but they're still my sisters. If they have a need, any resource I have can immediately be exhausted for their need. My dollar's their dollar. Whatever, I mean, they're my sisters. Now we're meant literally, literally, to think of one another in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters. It's not just a cheesy, warm title we call each other. It's a familial relationship that's been established by the blood of Christ and those who participate by grace through faith and become co-heirs of the coming kingdom. God is our Father. Christ is our brother and our Lord and Savior. And we are now brothers and sisters with each other. You can't find me a Pauline epistle where he's not talking about the brethren with familial terms. Meaning, you are to love and operate like a family. When you're upset with each other, you, can't, you don't run from fellowship. When you, I just rather not see them anymore. They're family. You got to work that out. You got to love each other through your issues. Because God has made you his children. And this family is meant to be a demonstration of the gospel that makes the world hunger to be a child of God. It's supposed to be set apart. It's supposed to be altogether different. Holy. Fundamentals. We gotta love one another. It's gotta have flesh on it. It's gotta be tireless. It's gotta be no matter what. It's gotta be unconditionally. By the way, many of you guys have biological families that are not Christian. I know that. This is an interesting thought. Power of the love given and received from you in the context of the church family ought to supersede that. And that doesn't mean you love your biological family any less, you certainly don't. But the love, the familial love of Christ ought to go even deeper than a biological connection devoid of the spiritual connection. In other words, there's no greater bond than the blood of Christ. You may have experienced this, by the way, if you ever go on an international mission trip, one of the reasons I highly recommend it, you get on the field 
you will meet people that you've never seen, talked to, or met halfway across the globe, on the other side of the globe. And you know what, you know what you'll do when you greet them? It's, it's wild. You'll hug them. You may not be a hugger. They'll hug you. You're, you'll immediately, you'll partner together in some kingdom endeavor to teach and train believers to make disciples. And you'll have this unspoken, immediate connection, this bond. One of my mentors says, in those moments, you never sit down and try to figure out where you might theologically degree, uh, sorry, disagree with one another. In those moments where you're in the underground church in Asia, or you're in the 1040 window, and the believers are persecuted, they're meeting silently in the night to rally around God's word. You meet a believer, you hug and you weep. That's about it. Don't divide. There's this bond of you are brothers, you are sisters, and brotherly love overwhelms you. Wouldn't that be great if that was our daily experience in the church? It's meant to be. It's fundamental to who we are. And he goes on to say, a tender heart. That's empathy. That's where that which is right here in our head gets to our heart. We don't just cognitively understand through listening the pain of others. We actually feel it. Now, that happens through relational authenticity. That happens when you're really in community. If you don't feel the other, if you remember here, you don't, you've never felt the pain of anybody else in this body, you're not close to anybody. We gotta be in community with them. That's why we have discipleship communities, small groups, because it's hard to do that just in a Sunday morning worship setting. You gotta be close enough where you can empathize. You can really feel the pain of others and bear up with them according to their need. That honors Christ, it magnifies the gospel. And he says, a humble mind. You know, the number one critique of the church, this always grieves me. I don't think this changes every year. The number one critique of non-believers, of Christians, is arrogance. They say that we're arrogant. That's like the worst thing that could be said about a Christian. It's so, it, it ought to be an oxymoron to have an arrogant Christian. Jumbo shrimp. I'll be the same thing. Like, how does a Christian, the very foundation for being a Christian is saying, I am a sinner, broken and in need, with no ability to fix myself or save myself. I'm at the end of myself. I'm over myself. I humble myself, and I come to the cross, looking to Christ, to Christ to do for me what I cannot do for myself. The very basis is humility and brokenness. How does the world see arrogance when they look at us? Pharisaicalism. The Pharisees were a part of the religious community and thought themselves better than everyone. And Jesus had no harsher words than for the Pharisees. You whitewashed tombs. Putting it all together on the outside, you're nasty on the inside. Okay? The one thing the world ought to say about a Christian is those guys are really humble, they're really over themselves. They don't seem to be after their own glory. That's unique. That's altogether different. That's not normal. Uh, now, Peter says, all of you, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Now, Christianity has always existed in conflict. Again, first century, they are they are setting Christians aflame in the days that this is written, burning them as light posts around Rome, as torches. 
It's ex- existed in the context of conflict where we have to live this out. He goes on to say, do not repay or yeah, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Uh, the idea is within the house of God, Lord forbid, but especially among non-believers, when, you, when evil happens to you, when you are offended, when somebody speaks unfairly about you or to you or takes a harsh turn or assaults you in some way, you are to not return evil for evil. Now this mirrors the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says so much when you're cursed, bless, don't return evil for evil, turn the other cheek. Um, uh, Paul writes to these things, John writes to this, Peter's gonna write to this, that we're to be a people that, Paul will write in Romans 12, quoting the Proverbs, when your enemy is hungry, give him food. When your enemy is thirsty, give him drink. By doing good to him, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now that's a strange phrase, I realize. And I've often kind of wondered, what exactly does it mean? I did my research this week, and it it means by your loving kindness, in the face of their evil towards you, they'd be shamed and melted towards repentance. This is, there's there's no more Christ-like way to act than this. I I racked my brain for a good illustration, and I came up with Star Wars, okay? Whether this is fitting or not, and I misquoted it in the first sermon. I said this came from The Empire Strikes Back. My boys have reproved me. This comes from Return of the Jedi, so I apologize for service. So in that, we see this epic battle between Luke Skywalker and his father, Darth Vader. If you didn't know that was his father, I'm sorry. Um, It's also an inner struggle, though, between Luke and himself. He has this battle going on. He is literally uh, uh, attacked by darkness, the, um, uh, the dark side, and... He has two things going on. Darth Vader, who's physically attacking him, trying to get him to turn to the dark side or be killed, and he has the emperor whispering lies into his head. You know you want to strike back. You know you, you, know you can take him out and you wanna take him out. And if you do it, you'll become more powerful than he ever was. And he's appealing to that fleshly, I'm tired of being stomped on and mistreated and attacked and I want to retaliate, I want vengeance, and I want power. And the emperor's saying, give in to the dark side. Take him down. And Luke, saber comes on, he's fighting. And then there's something inside of him, it's called the force in the movie. This will be likened to the Holy Spirit in my illustration. That's saying, don't do this. Do not fight darkness with darkness. You're called to go a different path. Put away your saber. Saber goes down. I will not fight you. I'm not going to do it. Then you're going to die. Okay, if I have to die, I'll die. And there's this struggle until finally what happens? Darth Vader, tasked to take him out by the forces of darkness, can't do it. He's overcome by Luke's love. And he turns on the emperor. That was great. I don't think they should have made the newer movies. That was a great spot to end right there. Um, that's the text. Our desire, fueled by the lies of the enemy, is to return evil with evil. Get your vindication, get your vengeance. Don't let them do you wrong. Overpower them, overcome them. And there ought to be, in the believer, still small voice inside saying, no, 
vengeance is mine. No, you don't respond to evil with evil. You return with a blessing because the goal is not your glory, it's mine. It's not your reputation, it's mine. And by your willing to be like Christ to them, taking up your cross, enduring their persecution and their insults, some I will win over, some I will. Uh, Interestingly enough, he's gonna give you two reasons right here to kind of end our text on why you do this. He says, don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. That word bless is the word you, logos, where we get eulogy. It means to speak a good word about. And I want to blow your mind for a second. This is fundamentals, but this is hard. I'm about to say it's hard to do. I struggle with it. I'm sure if you're honest, you do too. When someone is offending you, active tense, when they're speaking ill of you, when they're angering you, when they're antagonizing you, when they're doing you wrong, the text actually doesn't merely say ignore it for the sake of Christ. You know what it says? Bless them. It says, the the literal translation is, speak a good word over them. Wow. Now what's our tendency, if we're honest? The tendency is to go to somebody and confide in them how wrong you're being done and how angry you are, and somewhere in there you slide into gossiping about this ruthless, horrible person, and you feel better because you vented at their expense. The exact opposite is what the gospel compels us to do. You say only about this person that you're chiefly offended by. You say only good things. By the way, it's not the thing your mama told you about, say good things or say nothing at all. It's say good things. You speak a blessing over them. You'll find yourself praying for them. You'll find that it's not about you. You'll die to your fleshly desire to be vindicated or or get your vengeance. This is the most powerful thing. God will use this beyond what we can imagine. There's two reasons you do it. He says, you bless, you logos, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For two reasons, backwards and forwards. Backwards, because of what Christ has done for you. That says that you will obtain, the word obtain means inherit. Inherit a blessing. Inherit means you receive what someone else earned for you. So here's the truth. We have chiefly offended God in our wretchedness, sin, and rebellion. And what was the response of Jesus? Could have given us exactly what I deserved. Given us exactly what we deserved. What did he do instead? He responded to our offense. We offended him who is holy, and he responded by dying for us that we might receive the inheritance of his righteousness, that which he earned on our behalf. By grace through faith, we would inherit eternal life. Now, if he will do that for us who have offended him who is holy, how might we live with or act towards those who have offended us who are unholy? You say, well, I didn't deserve to be offended. Neither did he. And you probably did. There's a Spurgeon quote I came across this week that was hilarious, or I mean, convicting. He said, when somebody speaks ill of you, maybe they're not altogether right on that point, but what if they know the whole story about you? They'd have far worse things to say. Don't fight to defend yourself. What are you defending? You're worse than they might know or imagine. Don't defend that. Defend the reputation of Christ. How do you do that? 
Well, in my offense to him, he honored me by giving himself. So I'll honor him by doing the same with you. I'll bless you. Christ blessed me in the midst of my sin. God demonstrated his love for me in this while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. You know the way somebody can be convicted and repent of their sinfulness, their wretchedness, their offensiveness, if they see a mirror of Christ's likeness that reflects their unrighteousness. They don't see it when you return evil for evil. This is fundamentals. Uh, as a church, I love that we dream kingdom dreams. Acts 2 says to do it. I love that we're thinking about making disciples of all nations. I love that we're translating the Bible as we preach it into languages where the people don't have the word of God. I love those international mission trips I talked about. We're training indigenous movements of the gospel across the globe. Eight, nines, and tens. I love brainstorming those things. Those are exciting. But you know what's discouraging? When we can't do the one, twos, and threes. When we gossip about one another. We're not, we're not willing to sympathize, listen to somebody else's in pain because we disagree with them on an issue. When we can't do the one, twos, and threes, but we talk and dream about the eight, nines, and tens. This is the starting place. Peter says, all of you. Here's the context in which you live this out, but here's all of you. Same mind. It's about Jesus. Sympathy and empathy. Brotherly love, humility. Start there, which means we don't repay evil with evil. That's hard. That's a death to self. Right. We better be alive in the spirit. We don't revile those who revile us. Here's what we do practically. You bless them. You speak good over them. That's going to be shocking to those offending you. So shocking they may be one to Christ through your obedience to the word and through your carrying out the implications of the gospel, responding to what Christ has done for you. Well, there may be people even coming to mind right now for you that you've been frustrated with. Maybe unbelievers, maybe believers, that you've kind of held a grudge, that you've just decided, you know what, just going to distance myself from them. I just don't like them. You may have gone a step worse. You may have been one who's actively spoken badly about them. You may have returned evil for evil. I, want to invi- I, want to invi- I think this text invites repentance. I think it invites you, if you've done that, you need to do the most powerful gospel illustration possible. You need to go to somebody and say, you know what, you didn't even know this, but I was offended by you. I spoke bad of you. I'm going to repair what I can repair, and I want to apologize to you. If you want to go so far, so far as to say I'm way worse than you thought I was anyway, that's on you. But you seek forgiveness. You do what the text says. You pursue peace because of what God has done for you. Now, I said it looks backwards. It's because of the gospel. It also looks forward. This is the most interesting thing right here. Peter says, they speak evil of you. Welcome to a lost and broken world. People are sinful. People want to be vindicated. They want vengeance. They're selfish. They're idolatrous. They're rebellious. Oh, man, that just reminded me of a verse. In Titus 3, I read this this week. You know what this reminds me of? You be obedient and ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Watch this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slave to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words... Forgive them, pursue peace, love them, because you were just like them. Till Christ opened your eyes and saved you from that life of lostness and frustration and despair and envy. 
It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, the Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done in our flesh that were righteous, but according to his own mercy. So the first thing is because of the gospel. Second thing, though, he says, there's a blessing that you will obtain should you do this. Now, let me read it to you. Listen, and I'll explain. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Did you hear that? If you desire to enjoy life, Peter, I'm going to give you a little secret here to the enjoyment of life. Isn't that what we're all looking for? He said, practice the fundamentals of the Christian faith in response to the gospel. See, when somebody offends you, what happens is you get a little seeds of bitterness. And if you water those seeds, a plant's going to grow up. It'll become like an oak tree that you can't even hardly remove. It'll grow up into your heart and it will produce anxiety and anger and you will be a frustrated person. You'll have this kind of always uh, uh, deep undercurrent of frustration in your life unless you will let go of trying to fix everybody else and hold to your own reputation and pursue your own uh, glory in a sense. You'll live on uh, uh, at least a low level frustration your whole life. You won't be able to delight. The word Eden means delight. God created us to delight in him, to walk with our creator and enjoy his creation. That's what you're meant to do. He gave you eyes so you can see the goodness of his creation. Taste buds so you can taste it. Senses to make it tangible. We're meant to enjoy this journey in fellowship with God and his people. He says right here, if you step out of fellowship with my people, you're out of fellowship with me. You won't delight. You'll miss out on the substantive joy of this life because you're harboring bitterness towards one another. Because you won't let go. You won't trust me with other people's evil. You insist on returning evil for evil. You insist on playing God instead of letting me be God. And when you do that, you are going to be an isolated, frustrated, angry, despairing person. I've learned watching our elders, especially our older elders, they've just lived more life. The really godly character, patriarch men of this church, I love being around them because they seem to not be so worked up about everything I get worked up about. They just, they've kind of let go of the lesser things, way better than I have. I am really a work in progress on this. Y'all can pray for me. But they're not trying to fix everything that only God can fix. They're not trying to make everything right that someone else wrongs with them. They're quick to forgive. They're quick to speak a good word. They're quick to trust God. And here's here's what the fruit is of that life over time. It's freedom. Like they just... They're free, they can, they can enjoy this life. They delight in God, they delight in this good people. The, the harshness and the anger and the persecution, the criticism, it seems to kind of roll off their shoulders. It might disappoint them, but it doesn't divide them. It's tiring holding grudges. It's emotionally exhausting being bitter, embittered. You're a slave to bitterness. It's like going to Disney World with an abscessed tooth. It's the best I can think of. You go to this place that's meant to be sheer delight. It's utter joy. That's what it's supposed to be an escape from every other form of reality, and it's Disney World. And you enjoy it, and it's fantasy land, and you see the joy on your kids, but can you really enjoy Disney World with an abscessed tooth? 
no matter what's meant to be delighted in, the sights, the sounds, the thrills, you've got something rotten inside of your head and you're in pain. And every moment of temporary delight brings a reminder of pain. This is how it is to live with enmity in your heart. This is how it is to let that root of bitterness flourish and flower. You've gotta say, hey, in the same way we gotta get somebody to come take this decay out of your tooth, get that disease and that rot out so you can enjoy what's meant to be enjoyed, you gotta ask the Lord, get in here, heart surgery, clean me out. You gotta, God has to dig that root and those roots of bitterness out. And seeds of forgiveness can be planted. And you know what they produce? Peace and delight. Start looking like one of those elders. It's meant to be a joyful journey. It's meant to be a joyful sojourn, even in the midst of persecution. God says, I'll be enough for you. You'll delight in me and no one can steal it. Don't let them steal it. You'll be wronged. You'll be offended. You'll be gossiped about, you'll be slandered. Welcome to the human experience. You, you push all that over to the Lord's table. You, tr- you acknowledge your hurts, you trust him with it. You speak a blessing on those people. And you know what it says? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open now to your prayers. Isn't that good? The wind will be at your back. It says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord, Lord search to and fro to bless one whose heart is wholly his. God will bless you. You'll have freedom and you will have peace. That's meant to be a gift for us as we practice these fundamentals with one another. Let me just close with this last little thought. It's Mother's Day and I'll say this about my mother. You know what she does? She always, after almost every single sermon, she thanks me and she can't believe the things that I've learned theologically. I can't either. And she says, it's unbelievable that you're my son and uh, just seeing where God has taken you from where you were, epic knucklehead, to where you are, somewhat epic knucklehead, and that he's revealed you these things theologically that you're teaching and training me and I'm in all of God's goodness. I'm so thankful. Can I tell you what? All these big weighty theological truths are pretty worthless without flesh on them. And you know what I can say in integrity to my mom? Hey mom, thank you for living them out before me so that they make sense to me. Thank you for giving me a blueprint of what theology looks like with flesh on it. You have had one mind in the difficulty of life. You've been sympathetic and empathetic, tender-hearted. You've lived towards others, even those who have wronged you, with brotherly love. And you've been humble. I'd far rather put flesh on this to any degree than be able to espouse it clearly but not live it in any other way than, could, than wouldn't be considered hypocritical. Church, we must practice the fundamentals. The reputation of Christ is at stake. Father, thank you for these words of Peter. He said all of you, so let none of us 
uh, consider these words not to be for us. They're for me. Let me not get caught up in fleshly responses to evil. Let me actively pursue peace. Let me actively pursue forgiveness. Let me trust you with those things that I cannot fix or right, and let just rid me of all bitterness, slander, rage, anger, malice, and envy. And let it be so of our church that we would be a loving body filled with the peace of the Holy Spirit, experiencing your presence and delighting in it. Let us be a joyful family that the world might look at and long to know the author and perfecter of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.